Hey, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks, Chaz. Appreciate it. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 10. We have finished last week our series on Ecclesiastes, and next week we're going to start Advents. We're in this in-between week. We're going to look at one verse. It's a big topic. It's a little verse. Um, and I think it's because we're having the weirdest Thanksgiving since the pilgrims <laughs> had when they jumped off the boat with their weird little belt buckle shoes. Um, but like the pilgrims, we are celebrating inside of a year that I think has been a real difficult year, right? It's just a different Thanksgiving for us. Uh, but like the pilgrims, they had their Thanksgiving on the backside of a very difficult year, and that was 400 years ago this week, believe it or not. So in 1620 is when all the action happened back then. And I was reading about this in the book called Making Haste from Babylon. A guy named Nick Bunker wrote that. And he says this, just trying to capture the pilgrim worldview. He says, the pilgrims believed that everything followed a plan laid down by God before the beginning of the world. But it was a secret plan, a secret plan. And they talk about what's called God's providence, which is what we're going to discuss today. The secret plan is what they celebrated whenever they discerned where to drop anchor. That was a little bit of a discussion. If you look at the history about how they kind of floated up and down the, the coast, it, it was God's providence. It was his secret plan that they celebrated when they found corn for the first time. Um, when they saw who was dying and who was living, they celebrated this secret plan. They were thankful in this bitter year. And by the time they had this banquet that so much celebrated this banquet that you see in pictures, there was only 57 out of the 102 left. They'd already buried half of the people that left Holland with them just not too long before that. In fact, one of the first things they had to build when they landed on the coast was a cemetery. And that was a tough year for them. They saw a lot of sickness, a lot of penetrating cold. They saw bloodshed. They saw a little bit of mutiny. And this is a people that had already survived religious persecution for about 20 years. And here they are thankful. Thankful in this first Thanksgiving. And what were they thankful for? When you read about it, they were thankful for God's work in the world. How God was carrying his, what they call, secret plan forward. Not just for the good things that were happening, but for his plan in general. Because they knew that his plan would culminate and would land in a different Thanksgiving feast. Where one day they would all see their friends that they probably had already buried again around a banqueting table. Maybe some of the Indians that were there. There were almost 100 Indians at that same little banquet. Maybe some of them who would become disciples, they would be around that same banqueting table. In fact, with all the different tongues and tribes and nations. And they would be giving thanks before Christ himself at that final banqueting table. And they were thankful for this. You know, one of the things that I think is most unpalatable to a world at large is the idea of a God who has the power to stop pandemics and recessions, but chooses not to. It's simply unpalatable. Why would a good God allow something horrible to happen to people that he loves? It's not a bad question, right? I mean, it's easy to trust in the Lord whenever your trajectory is trending upward. It's, it's easy to trust in the Lord if God allowed bad things to happen to bad people. That wouldn't even jolt us too much. But when, when, our, when we feel like we love the Lord and we feel like things are going well and we are shaken or we hurt 
hard or we lose deeply, then our heart, if your heart's like mine, it provokes the question inside of us is, does God comprehend what is going on right now? Does he understand it, what's happening? Does he care? Is he punishing us? So I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And the other day, the Lord gave me a passage. It's the one we're going to look at in Matthew. And just to remind me that sometimes the thoughtfulness of God and his planning can feel very thoughtless in the moment. Right? I was on my back deck dispatching a dying bird that had flown into our picture window in the back of our house. I got in trouble because I talked about this this morning and my daughter was there and I didn't know that she didn't know that. And so I'm sorry. Yes, the bird's dead. Birds die. They all had mamas. It's a hard world. Okay. But this bird was dead sitting on the deck. I got a text from my, I'm really a good dad. I promise. I got a text from my wife saying there's a dead bird on the on the back deck, take care of it. So I did what I did. I walked back there, found the dead bird. That thing was the size of a small chicken too. I started looking for the cracks in the glass. I thought, man, I'm glad I'm not replacing a window right now. Threw the bird out into the woods because what else am I going to do with it? I'm not going to throw it away in the house. And while I'm carrying it to the edge of the woods, I felt the Lord prompt Matthew 10 of all things. And this is what it says. Matthew 10, 29. This is going to be passage that's going to help us understand this big concept today. And it's Christ saying, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. This is what he's saying. As expendable as birds are, in our eyes, their outcomes are thought through from God's perspective, from his perspective. He is involved in their means. He's involved in their ends. He's thoughtful even towards the birds. So how much more you? And as I carried this bird across the deck, I thought, man, this joker's had a tougher 2020 than I have, <laughs> right? And I've had, a pretty, I've had a pretty tough 2020. How about you? Right? And here we are on Thanksgiving looking for some reason to be thankful. And that's the big question for us today as we move through such a difficult topic. How are you supposed to thank a God who orchestrates such bitter years like 2020 and mean it? And mean it. Not the kind of thankfulness that we do sometimes or we see on TV where we're about to dig into the turkey and all the stuff that we eat on Thanksgiving and everybody goes around in a circle and gives one thing that they're thankful for. I'm thankful for the Vols. I'm thankful for my marriage. I'm thankful for my job. I'm th but like a deep resounding thankfulness. Because our goal as we kind of walk into the last six weeks of this year is going to be to process a hard 2020 to the glory of God and to maybe dream for a different year coming in 2021. And both of these, I think, are a hard task for us. I mean, I know that looking for reasons to be thankful in this year is going to be like looking for a quarter under the couch. It might be there. It's probably not, right? And I also know that to plan and dream for 2021, you might as well write it in pencil. I mean, you might as well think one month out. I quit holding my breath in July that things were going to return back to normal. So how do we as a church, how do we as believers look back behind us with a solid humility and look forward in front of us with a bold courage? How do we do this? I think like the pilgrims 400 years ago, the key to doing both of these is wrapped up in a concept called God's providence. Some of you have heard the word used and you're not quite sure what it means. We're going to just 
click on it and look into it because I think it's going to help us be thankful this year. God's providence. We actually peeked at it a little bit in our men's Bible study this week. We have a men's Bible study. If you're a guy and you're looking for a Bible study to be in, we're recruiting. We have a couple slots open. Just kidding. If you want to be in it, I'll give you the address and the time and you can show up. It's a great Bible study, but we took a peek at it because it's a complicated topic. The word providence is not in your Bible. The concept is the word's not. Lots of words aren't in your Bible too, by the way. Trinity, not in your Bible. Discipleship is not in your Bible. The word ethics, politics, they're not in your Bible. Listen, the word Bible is not in your Bible. But, but, it's the worldview of the Bible. The biblical world is a world of providence. Both the Old Testament and the New. And this is what it means. Providence is God's wise and thoughtful purpose. It's his wise and thoughtful plan. All of it ending in God's ultimate glory and our ultimate good. So I want you to imagine a flow chart. I think in flow charts, so this is easy for me. Bubbles and boxes and lines, processes, right? I want you to think of a flow chart. And I want you to think of that maybe being God's plan. Now, understand that when we build flow charts, it's two-dimensional. We're scribbling it on paper. You'd have to imagine something being more three-dimensional in God's perspective. And you would have lines going from a bubble 2,000 years ago to something that's happening today and having it go in three different directions after that. It would be too complex. It would be too majestic for us to understand. But it's a plan. And it's been a wisely and considerately thought through plan. This is what providence means. It's everything. The content between Genesis where he says, let there be light. And the very end of things when Jesus replaces our light with his glory. And providence is the doctrine that's perfect for bitter seasons and excruciating tragedies, dead birds and COVID, and lost jobs, lost babies, and shattered dreams. Good news and sad news are both products of God's providence. Both are, right? And the more we understand how God's providence works, I think the, the easier we find ourselves moving towards a place of adoring him in worship, even in difficult times. And that is especially important. Listen, as a leadership team, we're very uninterested in building churches that build churches, that plant churches, that build disciples and leaders who only celebrate the Lord when things are going well. Not interested. I think that sad experiment has been tried a few times in a few places before. I think the city needs to see that, yes, even something like the cross is a difficult and terrifying and horrifying moment, and yet very deeply thought through by God. I think also providence gets confused with sovereignty a bunch. It's probably another word you hear thrown a word around a lot. And, and there might be a little bit of overlap, and we usually mean one when we say the other, but they, they do connect. Sovereignty is God's power, and it's his right to do as he sees fit. Right? That's sovereignty. And we get this in Job 42 a lot. It'll be up on the screen. You can stay where you're at. He says, I know, Job says, I know that you can do all things. That's sovereignty, right? And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's providence. Right? So God being sovereign means he's in control. He's not waiting on your input. He's not waiting on your plan. He's not waiting for you to slide your plan across the table. He has an idea. He has a purpose. It's wisely thought through from time immemorial, from eternity past. 
before there were planets, he had already considered a plan. And his plan cannot be stopped. Nothing else in the cosmos is sovereign, right? We try to be sovereign, don't we? To have the power and the right to do anything we see fit to do in our world. And how does it end with us being a very angry people, that we're not getting what we want? And anxious people, because things aren't happening like we want them to. We try to be sovereign and we can't. Listen, the enemy of your soul tries to convince you and pretends to be sovereign. That's where this idea comes from that there is a God who is light and there's an enemy who is dark and they're pretty much the same thing. Just depends on what day it is that you meet one of them. And that's not the case at all. There is evil, yet it's restrained. He acts sovereign, and yet he is not. Listen, even nature looks like it could be sovereign. I mean, who tells the waves what to do? Who tells the mountains what to do? COVID looks like it can't be told what to do. And yet, not even nature is sovereign, which is why you can see Jesus wake up in a boat where his disciples are panicking and belt out a command and all the waves stop. Even creation obeys. Even creation is on a leash. But sovereignty doesn't speak to God's wise intentions. It just speaks to his power and his might. It's providence that speaks to his wise and thoughtful intentions. And so when we put them together, his plan, right, providence, is carried out by his power, sovereignty. You see how they fit together? Isaiah 46, God says it this way. He says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Okay? So let's drill this down. What does this mean? Well, let's not leave them as these high theological categories, right, that grow dust. Let's drill it down and put it in today. The application is, is that when something happens, it doesn't just happen. Nothing just happens. There is no chance. It doesn't exist. There are no coincidences. No such thing as an accidental death. Consider that for a moment. We say the phrase all the time, he died too early, she died too early. No, they didn't. They just died young. I've done funerals for babies. I've done funerals for college students. It feels like something happened out of time, like they died too early. They were just young. They died right on time, though. How do I know that? Matthew 10. Matthew 10. The verse that we're looking at today. God does absolutely nothing. He permits absolutely nothing without a wise and thoughtful purpose. So if we were to drill this down even more, this means that God not only comprehends the virus and the recession that's coming because of it, right? He has plans for it. Is that hard to hear? I mean, it kind of should be, right? That he has plans for something like that? I mean, Luke, you mean that God allows the virus to wipe out 1.4 million people? That he comprehends that? He does. He does. He hates it more than we do. He's sadder about it than we are. His tears weigh more than ours do. He's more disgusted by destruction than we are. He's more aghast than we are, and yet it serves providential ends. And before we get too outraged over what I just said, let me just remind you that the Black Death claimed almost 200 million lives. And think about that, 200 times what we've seen so far, right? 
I mean, almost 60% of Europe was wiped out. And again, God's sadness exceeds ours. As sad as you want to be about that, as many tears as you can release, you need to know that God has gone deeper. He feels deeper. God not only did not stop those devastations, he has plans for them. This is hard. I know it's hard. What could God possibly harvest from such tragedies? I don't know. I don't know. But I know he hates destruction. I know that. And I know he has a plan. Can I just say this is the number one struggle for people that the church will call nuns and duns. We've even used the phrase up here. A nun is the person that would check the box and say they have no religious affiliation. A dun is somebody that would say that they grew up with a religious affiliation and then departed from the church or the faith or both. Those would be the nuns and duns. And, and listen, this is the number one. I think it's the number one hesitation that nuns and duns have with trusting with a, a God. Is that a good God would allow bad things to happen. I know when I was a nun, when I was a dun, that was my biggest problem. To exacerbate it is the fact that he would allow these things for his own glory. Kind of God does that, I would say. I have to confess, I don't know how God uses every tragedy. I don't. I don't want to sound cavalier. I, I walked up on this stage carrying too many pains from friends and family who have lost, intensely lost They've hurt. They, they've gone to more funerals than they should. It's not something to just flout out there with some pride. To just dump providence on you and say deal with it. If it's a struggle, it should be. Because it's the heart of God and all of us that hates it when people hurt. It shouldn't compute easily. I don't know why God's plans look the way that they do. But I know that his plans exceed my broken plans. That I know, right? Isaiah 55, the Lord says this, For my thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, your ways, declares the Lord. So no, I don't know why God picks the tools that he does and the moments he does, but I trust that he is thoughtful for us. I trust that he's not cruel and vindictive. And you know why I do that? The cross. The cross, meditating on the cross. Okay, cross is the big pinnacle moment in what we call the gospel story. The gospel story is God's good news for mankind through the person of Jesus who lived, died, and lived again, right, to collect us as his people to himself. The cross is the fulcrum that all of the gospel story rests upon. But the gospel is a story of providential rescue right on time. It's not an accidental thing. I mean, <laughs> Listen, the gospel story is a horror story if God is not in full control of the moment. But the gospel is a story where the leaders of the day exhausted all of their best ideas to get Jesus to hang on a cross. I mean, legal experts today say that upwards of 21 laws were broken by the religious elite to finally, finally hang Jesus. He was fully victimized and yet it was God's thoughtful plan all at the same time. And no, it's not easy to wrap your mind around all of that. This is how Peter says it in Acts 2.23. He says, this Jesus, this is his first sermon, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. <laughs> Think about that. 
How were they supposed to compute that hearing that? This Jesus that God sent for one reason, for one moment that we've already seen happen, you guys have the blood on your hands for doing that. It was man's crime and it was God's plan and it was at the same time. Sure, they might have devised it. They might have secretly had little meetings in dark rooms under candlelight where they whispered about how they were going to take Christ out. And yet God already had mapped out this to be a big piece of the providential plan for the rescue of mankind and the redemption of the cosmos. And both of those are true. But listen, the gospel is still not good news if Christ went to the cross unwilling. If he was pushed to the cross, forced to the cross, well then it's not just a horror story, it's a story of abuse. It's just child abuse, divine child abuse at that point. But Christ took deep joy in the work of his father. He saw what the pilgrims called a secret plan, and he was satisfied. He was content in that moment. This is how he says it in Hebrews 12. It was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is what this means. When the sky went dark, and he's bleeding, and he's in his last moments, And evil is mocking him with a full-throated roar and his disciples have scattered. In that moment, he had a resounding joy that carried him through the madness and the pain. Not not a joy where, like a fake smile joy or a belly laugh or, hey, I'm going to tell a joke at an inappropriate moment just to make people feel like I'm not really hurting. It's not that kind of a joy. Not even close. This is the kind of joy that steadies the soul. Sometimes I call it a joy that puts ballast in the boat, that holds it steady through hard storms. It won't make you temporarily happy. It makes you ultimately happy. Jesus knew this this bitter week ending with a bitter cross was also thoughtfully considered by a loving father whose providential planning would end in the redemption of all of creation. In fact, he's actually, by approaching the cross, living out something that was said many moons earlier, and this will be in Genesis 50. This is Joseph speaking to his evil brothers, and his evil brothers meant to kill him, meant to snuff him out, meant to take him out of the picture. And later on, he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And here we are, thousands of years later, with a better Joseph and a better story and a better gospel where the elites meant to take him out. But the Father meant it for good. The Father meant it for good that many would be saved, not from a famine like in Joseph's case, but from death and destruction. So this is the conclusion we come away with when we look at providence as we trace these big passages. You can trust God and be in pain at the same time. You're allowed to. You can feel sadness on earth and a deep resounding joy at the same time. It's possible. Not a fake joy where we lie to each other, but a real joy. A real joy. This is how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 6. He says he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He was poor, yet enriching others. That he had nothing And yet he had everything at the same time. 
But really, I mean, what does any of this have to do with the week of Thanksgiving? What does it have to do with us this week as we all go our separate ways and meet with family or try to do the best we can with what we have this year? I'm here to tell you that every moment is a moment of thanks, especially the tough moments. Especially the tough moments. If God designs the arc and the storyline of every sparrow, how much more you and me? You see, every moment, when you think about it, is the beginning of your future. Today, it's the beginning of the rest of your life. And every moment is the last day of your past, your history. Now, before Christmas, I'd love to get to the point where we talk about the beginning of your future. I was talking to the men this morning at our residency, and we were talking about how, how hard it is to dream for 2021 when all of our dreams for 2020 were pretty much a joke and went up in flames before 90 days were up. When you have shattered dreams and shattered goals and nothing worked out well and we have no idea what the future is going to be, how do we as a bold group of disciples dream and envision a 2021 to the glory of God? How do we do that? And let me tell you, that's not a minor key issue. It's a big deal. How we walk into the next year. I'd love to talk about that. So much to be hopeful for as we look forward. And yet there's so much to be thankful for as we look back. God's providence, it teaches me humility that there is a plan and it's far better than mine. It's far better than mine. No matter how brilliant my plans are or yours, his are better. I don't always understand why he does what he does, but I can trust him. I mean, let's look at the words of a man who lost everything, everything in Job. At the very end of Job's story, when he's speaking with the Lord in Job 42, he says this, Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job was humbled when he saw how tiny his plans were, how puny his plans were, and how majestically incomprehensible the flowchart of God's providential plan looked, right? He just caught a glimpse of God, and he stopped asking questions. His interrogation of God stopped, and he lost more than anyone in this room. He lost absolutely everything, and he caught a glimpse of God, and he was satisfied. He was satisfied. Sure, he heard over his loss. Listen, don't let anyone teach you the story of Job, this coloring book version of Job, where the last page of the coloring book, he's got a big giant smile on his face because he's got, I don't know, more kids and more riches and a bigger, better house. You know, that, that's, that's how we've grown up reading it. Maybe, maybe he had a bigger family. Maybe he had more toys. He also had a cemetery real close by. He's not getting those kids back, right? Not getting those friends back. Not getting all that stuff back. He hurt, but not as much as God did. He cried, but he didn't grieve as much as God did. God hates death and destruction so much, he sent his own son to reverse it. No one has hurt that bad. So Job, along with the pilgrims, they remind me that every moment is a moment of humble thanks. No matter where we find ourselves, God is good not just for good food. God is good 
not just for good friends, but God is good. And his plans are good. And his end game is good. And his character is good. And his thoughtfulness is good. So how can we apply this today? I think the big takeaway is just to embrace humility when we look at our lives and our past and what's before us. I think a lack of humility is basically you and me supposing that we could have done better, right? We, we see God's plans, uh, his providence, and we see error in the code. We could have done so much more than he did with so much better results. And this is how I know when I'm doing that, I'm grumbling. When we grumble and complain, that is us trying to be sovereign. That is us trying to be forceful with a better providential plan. That is us saying that we could have done it better, like an armchair quarterback. You ever see them after a good football game, right? Talk about how messed up all the play calling was and what they would have done. They never even played football before, and they knew exactly what it would take to win that game. It's hilarious, but we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. That's what Job did in the first part of the book until he has stopped in his tracks. Maybe it's just in our heads that we silently protest and grumble. Maybe you're not grumbling in front of other people. But when we grumble and when we complain, it's because we consider our plans superior. And let me just say, that crushes thankfulness. Grumbling crushes thankfulness. Grumbling is evidence of zero faith. That God is flawed that his plans are defective. It's almost atheistic. I think this is why Paul says in Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you. This is him sovereignly working things through you, by the way. So it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then he, he chases it with this, do all things without grumbling or disputing. All things. God's doing the work. He's doing it through you. Stop grumbling. Don't grumble. So when we find ourselves judging the Lord's providential purposes in our life, Find the cross. With a deep humility, find the cross. Look at the story of God. Reflect on how the most disgusting moment in human history leads to a moment before us where every tongue and every tribe and every nation will be gathered around a true thanksgiving feast. The next time that we take communion with our king. And this will be a time and a place of no shame, no selfish demands, no shame-based obedience, no sickness, no death, no overtime at work, no lack of creativity, no crutches, no loneliness, no regrets. It's going to be a beautiful table. What was meant as evil turned into life for so many of us. And if God is mindful of every bird outside of my window, how much more mindful is you in his mind in the year 2020 and 2021? So 400 years ago this week, 57 pilgrims and just under 100 Indians thanked God on the backside of a very bitter year. They trusted their God and they trusted his providential secret plan even when it hurt. They found humility and they found thanks. And I think this Thanksgiving, we can trust that God has been thoughtful and considerate in our lives. And not just our lives, but mankind. And if this is a struggle for you, I just challenge you to look at the cross. So we're going to end with a, I'm going to read it to you. Um, 
and then we'll take communion together. Chaz actually started off with this. We did this on purpose. This is Psalm 100. The reason we chose this psalm today is history has it, this is the very first piece of Bible that was read when the pilgrims got onto the shore. They started off their whole project with Psalm 100. It's a psalm of providence. This is the psalm. It's a psalm for giving thanks, it says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Let me remind you, half of them are dead. Okay? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Let me remind you, they didn't know what the future held. It had been a long, dark ice age of the last 20 years. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Go ahead and stand with me. And we're going we're gonna to finish this out. And we're going to take communion together as a church. We've been doing this since June this way. It's not the way we used to do it. It's our COVID way of doing it, though. So if somebody, y'all already have it. Listen, if you are a guest here and, you know, you would say you are not a Christian right now, listen, don't worry about this, okay? This is just something that we'd lo- I would love for you to consider taking Christ instead of taking this right now. But if you are a Christian, you don't even have to be a part of Legacy, but if you're a Christian and you want to take communion with us, go ahead and raise your hand, and that good-looking man's going to throw you a cup, one of these little Insta-cups. Nice. And so it's got two tops. It's not an optical illusion. It really has two tops. And when you pull the little clear one back, you get the little wafer. I'm not sure what food group this is in or what the caloric intake is on this wafer. I'm pretty sure it's negative everything. Um, but it's, this, this is not anything more than a symbolic representative of the broken body of Christ. It is not Jesus' body. It's not magical. It's not going to give you a great day today. But it is something that we do as a memorial before the Lord in remembrance of what he has done for us. Okay? So, Father, we thank you for being good. And when... I look at the history of mankind and I see war and carnage and broken families and broken marriages and broken minds, broken wombs. It's hard for me to see anything good about your plan. It does look like there's error in the code. But then you you provoke me, Lord, to look at the cross which is this one key moment in human history where things couldn't have been more wrong and yet they couldn't have been more right at the same time. You are the architect. You are the architect of providence. And you are the motor behind making it happen. You are truly sovereign. And so when we take this bread, we do it in remembrance of a body that was broken on the cross for us. Father, we thank you for the blood that was shed. And I know that just as we read in the passages this morning, that blood was shed willingly. That Jesus wasn't 
pushed to the cross. He didn't have to get bribed up there. No one had to scold him in order to get him. He wasn't shamed up on the cross. He willingly went against the grain because of a joy, a resounding, deep, anchored joy in him for what you were building. He could see the conclusion of what you were drawing everything to. This moment when all will be right and the cosmos will be redeemed and even the sun itself is replaced with the glory of God as we all sing and rejoice and fellowship for eternity with every second being better than the second had just passed. He could see it and it sustained him. Lord, let it sustain us. Let it sustain us. We ask for your Holy Spirit to do the same in us. I know this is a year that's going to be difficult for us to get there quickly. And I pray for your Holy Spirit to help us find our way. So we take this juice in remembrance of you. And Lord, I know that this Thanksgiving, it's going to be less people around the table with maybe a little less to, to celebrate, a little less money, a little less everything it feels like. And yet, Father, you have called a church to yourself that, like the pilgrims, can stand there with, with a cemetery on their right and with these new friends and the Indians on their left and this beautiful vision of what you're doing in front of them. And even with the horrific past behind them, we could be thankful. That this would be a year of thanksgiving. Not because you do good things for us, but because you have done something tremendous for us. That your favor rests on us totally despite us. A favor that we couldn't earn and a favor we couldn't run away from. So we thank you. You were good. You were glorious. You are considerate and thoughtful. You are wise. You are strong. You are a very good God and we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.